0: Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our sixth episode, I'll be talking to Kate Raculia, author of This Must Be the Place, and Bellwether Rhapsody, about the miracle of the Muppets. Along the way, we'll discuss stealing jokes from Reader's Digest, the essential loneliness of Gonzo, performance artist, why Steve Martin has ruined fancy restaurants for everyone, and the adult realization that you're a Burt not an Ernie. We'll finish the episode with our signature cocktail and tell you how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. who may not know you, why don't you tell us what it is that makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake?
1: Oh my goodness, where to start? (laughs) Well, I will say that I am a writer. Um, For the last two years, I have been mostly a full-time writer, which is still a unique and evolving experience. Um, Prior to this, I lived in Boston for 11 years. Uh, I moved there to go to graduate school and then I worked in offices for, oh my gosh, I forget. The math of me. I forget how many years. Um, (laughs) I worked in finance, two different finance jobs, and then I worked in fundraising for four years. So I had a lot of like, quote unquote, day jobs while I was writing um, the first of my two published novels and uh, my 10 year plan was to save enough money to take a leap and go try to be a full-time novelist, um, which is what I did. I moved to Bethlehem in the summer of 2014, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, explicitly because the cost of living here I could afford to be mostly a full-time writer and because I had very, very dear friends, friends as family, who were here, local. Um, and it's close to New York and close to my, my parents, and it's it's a good place to be. But um, so, yeah, that's what I do. I'm a writer, yay, <laughs> and a freelancer, <laughs> and I do all kinds of other random little jobs um but yeah it's it's been it's been a life less ordinary for two years and I am hopeful I just finished a draft of my third novel um it is literally with my agent right now uh I have not heard anything back yet which is not bad I just I'm in a state of suspended animation
0: oh cool so for those who may not know what what are your other novels I mean I know so
1: (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah. So the, my first book, it's called This Must Be the Place. It was published in 2010. The way that I described it at the time is that it was sort of a mashup of Gilmore Girls and Twin Peaks. It's, a, it's a, about a mother and a daughter, an art forger and his son. And a guy who is heartbroken and grieving because his wife, who worked in special effects, just suddenly died, and he goes to the tiny town in upstate New York where she was a child and gets involved with the people in her past. So it's, it's, more, it's more Gilmore Girls than Twin Peaks. It's not that bizarre. See, I was going
0: to come up with a complicated joke involving saying Gilmore backwards, but you know what? It's not even worth it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, um, and the second book is called Bellwether Rhapsody. Yes.
0: That- yes. I'm making happy hey. noises. Yay, that
1: book thank so much. you. Thank you. That came out in 2014 and that is more of kind of explicitly. I'm I'm my, you know, kind of working writer theory is that most novels stories are mysteries and that we're wondering how is it going to end. Um but this one was explicitly a mystery based on my love of Agatha Christie and Stephen King. It's kind of a mystery horror mashup that I described as glee meets the shining. It's kind of a closed room mystery set at a hotel in the Catskills during a snowstorm while it's hosting a conference retreat for musicians. And on the first night, a very talented girl disappears. Was it murder or prank?
0: And not just musicians, but specifically child prodigy musicians.
1: Yep. Yep. One of the main characters is a bassoonist. I played the bassoon in high school. Um, His twin sister is a vocalist and a diva. Um, and I just adore her. And Margaret Willison, who's also been on this podcast, like while she was reading it, kept texting me that I was sub-noveling her. <laughs> and I was like, it's true. Now I feel like I have actually met Alice in real life. It's kind of magical. Um, yeah. So yeah, so those are my two books.
0: You mentioned that with with Bellwether Rhapsody that I found when I was reading it, it was, again, the whole first half of that book, I, feel, I felt like I was constantly second-guessing what type of book this was. Because depending <laughs> on what type of book this was, it meant very different things for what I was reading. So, you know, it's—I'm I mean, not going to give away too much of the plot because everyone should go and read this book. I mean, you mm-hmm. mentioned Margaret before. Margaret has been—I uh, consider her my encourager emeritus oh, no. because <laughs> anytime she has a project of yours that she likes, she will spruik it endlessly, and I yes. very much appreciate that about her. Same. But she does Same. that for everyone, yourself included. Yep. I found this, and I actually went looking for this book, and it was— apparently out of stock across australia which i'm i'm assuming is margaret's fault <laughs> um, so i eventually had to get the ebook version and yeah for the first half of this like i'm going through i'm like okay is this a ghost story because if it's a ghost story then i think i know how this is going to play out is it is it a mystery is it one of those unreliable narrator things is this person mm-hmm. going crazy like what's happening and but then also it's it's this beautiful kind of coming of age story where, you know, you have people discovering themselves outside of a a family environment or outside of their normal kind of school environment, which uh, as someone who did drama in high school, going to drama fest and kind of having kids from all over the province being thrown into this Mm -hmm. kind of maelstrom, it's kind of like the Olympic Village, but everyone's a little bit younger. And it's like you're you're all good enough at what you do, but you also (laughs) all do the same kind of things. And so there's a little bit of, there's a competitive aspect, there's a collaborative aspect.
1: Yep. And there's a little friction.
0: And there's a hell of a lot of hormones.
2: Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, I feel like this book, I mean, obviously I was a, I was a music kid. I also, I was never on stage in drama, but I was in the pit and I did tech, um, you know, like des- helped paint sets and, and did the like designs for the programs and like did a lot of the other things that like did not involve actually being on stage those experiences were so important and informative to me as a young person and you're right in that it sort of like got you out of your original context into some other context sometimes with kids you knew and were seeing in different ways and sometimes with kids who you had never met before but suddenly felt like oh my gosh like I've known you all my life um it's the sort of first really like non like safe family like parameters like your known environment yeah it was the first time outside of that still very safe but also just like this time for potential or tremendous um growth and excitement and self-discovery so well thank you i'm glad that it spoke to you
0: oh totally i i get a little bit a little bit burnt out on ya sometimes because especially a lot of ya though much of it is exceptional you also end up with a lot of similar kind of beginnings of stories and where they d- diverge is much later so you find the same kind of setups and initially my first thought is always okay here's here's another kid with perfect musical taste for that <laughs> era you know who loves all the all the bands that were cool then that no one actually listened to in 1983 and uh, you know and here here here's a misunderstood kid from a from another family who has hints at family problems but it's like once you get past that you get this divergence into this interesting unique story and
2: yeah
0: i never felt that at all with bellwether Rhapsody. Oh. i just kind of fell into it i'm not going to refer to it as slipping into a warm bath the way some book reviewers did um
1: <laughs> i would i would take that i mean it's a little weird but like i would take that as the compliment it is ten- intended to be <laughs>
0: exactly yeah they, there was no um there was no disruption stepping into that world so yeah kudos again
1: Thank you. And I do, I mean, I love playing with genre and expectation, right? Like, especially if you're writing in something that is explicitly either a YA genre or a mystery genre, like, the forms are so, like, especially mystery. Like, the the beats in the genre can be so predictable and the fun. And I feel like why Agatha Christie was so amazing, and she still is, like, but... I like I can't read a book now because of her and not like almost immediately spot the person unless the writer is expecting me to do that and flips the cliche back again like yeah <laughs> like, and, and, and really, you get like four
0: like, four different variations on that where it's a, a red herring within a red herring but that person's yep. also involved but not in the way you think yep. and at that point you know you're you're basically just like you know spinning yourself into this little spiral that goes tighter and tighter yeah uh, with, with genre conventions yeah.
1: I loved doing stuff too that's sort of like when you know if you're playing in a form like that um and being so kind of like clever and tricksy hobbit about it like i like i i think it's tony morrison who the quote about like people will remember how you make them feel when mm-hmm. they when they read your readers will remember how you make them feel so i always like i love sentiment obviously bellwether Rhapsody is an extremely sentimental book um but that's kind of like what you know you can be tricksy hobbits and like plot crazy to to like the end of the earth but like i like to make characters who people really care about and that i really care about and so that that's also like that's kind of how i like i like to pair the genre twistiness with the like the emotionalness yeah that's great <laughs> is that a word <laughs> Em- emotionalness. I,
0: I was going to say you mentioned the the form, and I was just thinking of all of the Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys books that I read when I was a teenager, yep. or younger than that, and saying, okay, well, the person who picks them up at the train station is going to be involved. Whether like the level to which they're involved mm-hmm. is the question, and it becomes a little bit like, uh, do you ever listen to Thrilling Adventure Hour?
1: Oh no, I ne- I haven't, but it sounds really fun.
0: Within Thrilling Adventure Hour, there is a there's a whole bunch of different like serial, radio serial type shows. There's Sparks, Nevada, Marshall and Mars. There's Beyond Belief, which is about uh, Paul F. Tompkins and Paget Brewster being like these sort of like thin man style mediums, which is great. Mm -hmm. They're both great. Uh, But the one I was thinking of is called Captain Laserbeam, which is a send up (laughs) of uh, it's basically Batman 66 if it was also The Shadow complete with, like, amazing theme song and John DiMaggio giving his best voice like this. It's, it's oh incredible. Oh, all that's amazing. But, all, but the stories are exactly the same to the point where it's like a villain is introduced. He's always at a charity ball. Yeah. He always gets called away to the Adventure Couture hideout where they can tell him what's happening. And even the dialogue has the same flourishes. And it's where they break that mold that is where you get the big laughs. Yeah. Because yep. it's one thing to refer to, oh, that there is a, a villain named Shape Ape. Who tries to steal buildings <laughs> that look like triangles, and uh, how he is a ge- a genius ape, which makes him about an average human when it comes to intelligence. <laughs> and it and and of course that's voiced by Clancy Brown, amazingly. Oh, of course, of course. And he always like gets trapped in trapped in a death trap and fights out with his laser willpower, where he remembers things the adventure caretir said to him earlier, and it's always it and it, it's always in that echo voice of, "What would Apex City do without you?" Without you, <laughs> without you, and then of course the non <laughs> sequitur gets repeated, and he fights free, and it's but it's the deviations from that to the point where it's like, but e- even the basic lines are so funny. I know I'm just going to just turn into me talking about thrilling adventure out and how much I love it.
1: <laughs> but it's true. It's like. Definitely like is the pleasure in knowing like what is coming or in knowing and what is coming and also like knowing that the person who's writing the story also knows that you know and you know it together so they're gonna like be silly like that's yeah it's i i really enjoy just like thinking about that and playing with that and i think that's a really it's fun
0: <laughs> yeah it, it's similar to the um, i can't remember if it's buster keaton or charlie chaplin who listed that the, the best banana peel joke ever is where someone sees a banana peel, steps to the left to avoid it, and falls through an open manhole cover.
1: <laughs> Precisely. Self-aware comedy. Exactly.
0: So, so Kate, we've talked a little bit around this, but let's, let's bring it back to you. So where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in upstate New York in Syracuse. My parents and I lived in a little house on Hastings Place, a dead end street until I was nine. And then we moved to more kind of like suburban Syracuse downtown. I mean, it was definitely, it was, it was not like a city Well, I guess having lived in Boston, (laughs) like it wasn't a city like that kind of city, but it was more city-like. The houses were smaller, the yards were smaller and closer together. Um, And then when I was nine, we moved more kind of to the suburbs north of the city to North Syracuse. Throughout all of that, though, I went to, uh, my mother taught third grade at Lafayette um, Central School District, which is a more kind of rural uh, area south of the city, south of Syracuse. So I went to the same um, elementary and high school, even though I moved
0: Okay. And did you have brothers and sisters? Were you an only child? What was the situation there?
1: I, I'm an only child. It's, it's all me. <laughs> <laughs> and I've had many people actually say to me, wow, you're like the most well-adjusted only child I've ever met. And I'm like, I've actually, I've never really met any of these like monstrous only children um, that like people seem to think exist. I'm sure they exist because life is a rich tapestry. But um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I've, I've always, I mean, I think as an only child... What that meant for me as a kid was that I was extremely good at amusing myself, at making up stories for myself. <laughs> you can see this directly correlating into life as a writer, and and really gravitating to adults, and both for conversational purposes and also like adult humor. Like I have a lot of really clear memories of like following my parents around the house, telling them jokes that were very stupid. Like I can <laughs> see now. Like I don't even remember what they were. They usually involved Star Wars characters. And, like, just, like, trying to, like, keep, like, you know, like, wetting a knife against a stone, (laughs) like, trying to hone this, like, really, you know, crazy sense of humor, one obnoxious, you know, drill it into the ground Star Wars joke at a time. (laughs) But, yeah, so I think that's, yeah, it was an only child.
0: Thinking about that that sort of interaction with adults and refining that humor. I think I had a little bit of that too. Although with me, it was usually cribbing jokes from some stuff like Reader's Digest or joke books. And then...
1: Uh, oh, oh, life in these United States. Oh, yeah. Oh God, yes.
0: And then like wait, waiting until like an aunt was over or something and then breaking it out as if it's your own. And, yeah, yes, yeah. and that aunt going, oh... They're so precocious, aren't they? And it's just like, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I totally I will accept this compliment.
1: I actually had a subscription to Reader's Digest as a child. Like from, I don't know, maybe like seven or eight until I was 10 or 11 because my grandparents got it. And like, I would read it all the time because of life in the United States. Humor in uniform.
0: Um. Laughter is the best medicine.
1: Yep, it it is. (laughs) (laughs) All the weird little anecdotal like... There's just something about – and I don't even remember reading, like, the Reader's Digesty kind of articles. I do remember reading um, for many, many, many years as a child and even, like, as an adult. My family would rent uh, little houses on a Lake in upstate New York, kind of near Sylvan Beach. And one of the houses or cabins – we called them camp, which is, like, an upstate New York sort of thing for, like, saying a cabin by the water going to camp mm-hmm. – um, one of the camps had, like, a full selection of Reader's Digest, like, condensed novels. Oh, which yes. Which is where I yes. first read Jaws and the Stepford Wives, <laughs> <laughs> which is, like, so anyway, have very fun feeling of those, but, yeah, Reader's Digest, it was just, like, like, the sketch of the joke, right, this, the form and the setup of the joke, and usually they were puns um and yeah my grandparents totally got the subscription for me for many years
0: excellent see i would always go i would go to the lefters the best medicine and i would go to the drama in real life stuff because those were occasionally yep. gory and scary but you knew it was safe because yep. it was in a magazine <laughs> and yeah the condensed books like i remember always thinking that my parents were so sophisticated because they had those leather bound read, read digest, condensed books <laughs> up on a high shelf <laughs> and you'd just be like i remember reading one and it was about a kid that got kidnapped. And his – eventually they get lost in the woods, his kidnapper and him, and they have to, like, save each other's lives. Which, come to think of it, that's a terrible situation.
2: Right? (laughs) It's, it's like,
0: basically Stockholm Syndrome, the book, involving (laughs) snake
1: bites. And I'm like (laughs) – That's also what of, like – I mean, growing up in the 80s, I feel like there was a lot of particular paranoia about child abductions. Like, that's still, like, a weird – child fear of mine and maybe again as the only child i knew if i was abducted like that would not be great <laughs> not that it's better if you have more children oh my god what a terrible thing to say i'm not a terrible person
0: <laughs> what was that you were saying about uh, only ch- children being terrible person and how that's a myth
1: it's a myth it's a myth yeah <laughs> sorry <laughs> that's a muppet movie joke <laughs> it is myth
0: so, um, so you've said a little bit. Apart from, you know, oh, by the way, kids, ask your parents what Reader's Digest is. Oh, <laughs> and but <laughs> apart from cribbing, cribbing stuff out of the Reader's Digest and texting out on your parents, what kind of an only child kid were you? Like were-
1: I. I think I was, like, in certain circles, I was certainly outgoing. Um, I was very outgoing with, like, my parents. um, Less so with my peers, mostly because, like, as an only child, I was like, "Mm, you're not interesting to me. (laughs) Where are the adults?
0: (laughs) Um, It's like, look, look, what you're doing is great, and I appreciate that. It's just not what I need right
1: now. It's just not what I need right now. Um, And also, I mean, because I lived out of district, like, I didn't see – most of my school friends during the summers, um, which is when you really have kind of the most time to sort of like get up to your own shenanigans. So, and in school, I mean, I was like a total teacher's pet, not just because I was a teacher's daughter, because like I really liked to perform well and like do well in school. And like I loved (laughs) learning. And like I I really, um, school always came easily to me and was always, most of the time, a source of joy, which I really um, appreciate, feel lucky, feel gratitude that that was my experience. So I would say I was... Kind of nerdy very creative I was always telling stories I had a whole like <laughs> alternate universe that I made up and like drew pictures from and wrote stories about uh anthropomorphic cats who okay. um, you know obviously who like wore clothing and like just like lived in tree houses that I would draw that were really elaborate drawings um <laughs> that would have various like gift stores and grocery stores that we as humans visited the cats would also visit in their tree house world i would say that i was very like i read a lot i watched a lot of television um but very like i remember watching very kind of like mindfully like i remember once being outside playing and then thinking like oh i have to get home because the dark crystal is on hbo at three (laughs) o'clock like i would come home it was like appointment television for me even then I rewatched a lot of movies as a child. If I had to pick, like, core film texts for me as a child, it would probably be The Last Unicorn, Ghostbusters, Raiders of the Lost Ark, but mostly, like, seen on television, and Temple of Doom, which, like, I can really kind of, I can, you know, arguably ostensibly say it's not a great movie, but, like, I am extremely fond of it because I watched it, like, a lot while I had the chicken pox.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm completely with you there. Temple of Doom, for the longest time, like, until I was maybe, maybe 12 or 13, temple of doom was the only indiana jones movie i knew yeah and yeah like it was my favorite because when you're a little kid seeing that indiana jones has a buddy named short round who gets to go on all his adventures it's that same allure of you know reading batman comics and yep. wanting yep. to be robin like you don't want to be batman because being batman's hard mm-hmm. so it's like you i would look at that and i'd go okay short round is cool he gets to kick guys in the face he breaks yep. the black sleep of kali and works out the solution and he
1: solves it Yep. Like,
0: he drives. He, he gets to, like, you know, st- uh, cheat at cards with Indiana Jones. That's, that's <laughs> the best when you're a kid.
1: It is. It is. And also, I mean, he's also data. Goonies is also a complete formative text for me, um, filmic text. And and the Muppet movie is definitely, like, when I, when I watch these movies now as an adult, which I do, you know, not like, it's not like, oh, it's November. I should watch the Goonies again. But, like, I do, if I'll catch them on TV or sometimes I'm just in the mood, I just see that the way that, like, kind of internalizing – those movies shaped both the stuff that i write and and just kind of the way i think about the world for better or for worse
0: <laughs> so you've raised the, the muppet movie and you've raised the dark crystal earlier so now's a good it's good a time of any to segue into what you wanted to talk about today which was muppets in general and the muppet movies Yay. in particular
1: I like there are I don't remember a time before the Muppet movie existed consciously. I think that I probably first heard the album uh, at my babysitters when I was like three or four when my mom after my mom had me. She took me I was born in January and I think she took the year off after that. But she went back to teaching when I was like two and a half. So I I went to Mrs. Dosman's house, (laughs) and she she, um, babysat maybe, like, three or four other neighborhood kids, and I just remember listening to the album. I'm also, obviously, a very musical person, hence Bellwether, but... And the music in the Muppet movie is fantastic, and, like, I can't watch that, like, opening helicopter shot of the Muppet movie where you're, like, coming in on the swamp, and it's very sort of, like you know, shimmery sort of cloud music and then the the like little banjo beginning of Rainbow Connection starts. There's something about it. I'm getting emotional. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's something about it that's so hopeful and pure coming from uh, again, it's like oh wow. I am sinking back to like what we were talking about earlier about, you know, self-conscious comedy. The Muppets are extremely self-conscious. Oh yeah, the um,
0: the entire movie and uh, again, I'm realizing yes. this as an adult, the entire movie is a framework on which to hang these sketches. Yes, and yep. Because, I mean, if you, again, talking about, we talked earlier about Fast, Fast 7, or sorry, Furious 7. I'm reading straight. that straight.
1: Fast, Fast 7 is the next one.
0: The idea where it's, it's a framework to hang these ridiculous action sequences on. And I would posit, mm-hmm. making the first connection that anyone has ever made between the Fast and Furious films and the Muppet films, <laughs> that <laughs> the, the quality of that movie is not in the movie. Because, again, I remember trying to show it to someone, uh, to my ex, actually. I was trying to show her the Muppet movie, the first Muppet movie, yeah. and saying, like, this is this amazing thing. And her having a really hard time getting into it because it is really? so hammy. The story is so yep. hammy.
1: So hammy. And so, like, like it's built on this genre of, like, a, you know, like, a road movie, a like, let's get the band together, but it's also, like, a movie within a movie because you know the band is already together and they're watching the movie.
0: <laughs> yeah. So you're watching for, for oh, this is where they meet Gonzo. This is where they meet Sweetums. This is where they meet mm-hmm. everybody. And, oh, Doctor Taking yep. Electric Mayhem and that frickin' bus. Oh, Yes. <laughs> I wanted that bus to be our family car.
1: <laughs> I Actually, I have the, like, from The Great Muppet Caper, I think Pizza Hut probably made, like, tie-in glasses, mm-hmm. and I have the tie-in glass that has the, like, the, the like, just spin on the, on the Electric Mayhem bus that they drive in that movie. Oh, wow. It's one of my most cherished oh, wow. possessions. <laughs> yep. But, yeah, they're all, like, it's like you're waiting for... And it's an origin story, too, right? Like, it's both a, like, it's a Hollywood story, like Hollywood dreams in their eyes story. It's an origin story. But it is also really emotionally, like, the Muppets are ironic and silly, but they believe in the value of theater and art and performance and community. And those things are not, like, they're very unironic, the way they believe about them. And sort of all the other, like, silliness kind of makes it not feel um, pedantic or preachy.
0: Exactly. Although a special mention goes to, um, I think it's my favorite bit of the entire movie, uh, apart from the song Moving Right Along, which is, the, like, yeah, one of the best Muppet songs.
1: Bear left, right frog.
0: <laughs> Turn left at the fork in the road. I don't believe that. <laughs> and it's like, uh, uh, you talk about that self-referential humor. It's like many animated comedies would have had that fork in the road joke. Yep. But it would have just been left there as a joke to have Kermit actually go, that's, that's ridiculous. What, what, what? Yes. <laughs> But no, specifically my favorite scene is the transcendent scene with Steve Martin as the worst waiter on the planet.
1: Sparkling muscatel.
0: To the point where every time I go to a a fancy restaurant and they pour the wine for me to taste it to see if it's corked. And I just want to spit it and say, exquisite choice, sir.
1: (laughs) muscatel one of the finest wines of
0: idaho <laughs> do you wish to smell the bottle cap sir
1: bottle cap. <laughs> it's just so oh god it's so funny and like
0: oh and it's even worse because i have since um because okay small tangent uh especially in the australian wine uh industry there's been a greater move towards screw caps over cork oh because yeah cork is imported and it's very expensive and environmentally and friendly and so There are now screw caps for about maybe 75% of the wine that you buy in Australia. And including some, one by a particular brand called Gotham Brothers, where they serve their uh, sparkling white wine that literally has like a Coke bottle, like metal bottle cap. And I bought a (laughs) bottle of that wine purely so I could give the line
1: at a party, do you want to smell the bottle cap?
0: (laughs) Which I think should tell you a lot about me.
1: Living life correctly. My best
0: life. (laughs) Oh, um, and speaking of the Muppet movie, and uh, I remember boring someone to tears and using a lot of gestures in trying to explain how the differences between how the Muppet movie handles time and predestination and breaking the fourth wall Mm -hmm. compared to space balls. Yes. And how they can be argued as uh, opposing sides of uh, an argument on free will and determinism. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh my god, tell me more, tell me more.
0: <laughs> okay, so, in the Muppet movie, it, they look at the script partway through.
1: Yes, yes.
0: And then they accidentally leave that script behind with the electric mayhem, mm-hmm. so that when they get lost later in the movie, the electric mayhem know where to Nowhere find, to find them, them, because they have the script.
1: Exterior. Day. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly we know exactly we know exactly where to go because where you are going is determined you may not be aware of it however in this book it tells you everything that's going to happen and so it's okay it a gives a form of safety in that we know it's going to turn out okay in the end for all that it's scary but also it allows the characters to have that awareness and then manipulate that while the timeline stays the same by doing that they have already always done that because it's in the script the finding the, u- the using the script to find them is actually in the script
1: my mouth to find is like to hanging to find open. what
0: but compare that to spaceballs when they go to ludicrous speed and they they put in the videotape of the movie, oh, the movie that they are in and they're looking at it and they find themselves looking at a screen and looking back at the camera and looking back at the screen and then they fast forward and there's nothing there because that hasn't happened yet.
1: <gasps> when will then be now?
0: Exactly. It's like always oh, exactly. It's like it, you feel your brain oozing out your ears if you get too far into it.
1: Oh my god.
0: Oh, it's it's exceptional.
1: That is. And it, I mean that really like that piece of the Muppet movie. It might be my Rosetta Stone that movie because it has all the sort of like playful genre like self-knowledge, but it also is very emotionally like sentimentally um even even as it's like poking fun at itself like the whole part where Fozzie's singing America the beautiful <laughs> and like it's silly but it's also like stirring <laughs> like weird
0: you you've got big you've got big bird hitchhiking to going to break into yeah, children's television to
1: public television yeah <laughs> Like, all of those things, but also you're right. Like, there's that sense of, like, this is how it happened because this is how it, it's going to be okay. But, like, we also, like, know how it's going to happen. So even if it's not going to be okay, we can make it okay.
0: Like. <laughs> it's all going to be right in the end, coming back to that script thing. It's all going to be right in the end. Um, and it's yeah. funny because uh, yeah. when the Muppets will do press tours, which, hey, take a moment to appreciate the synergy there. right. Uh, when, right. like, Kermit and Miss Piggy and such will go on morning shows, They have to remind the hosts and such that, oh, they're like, oh, you were in a lot of trouble in this movie. And then Kermit will kind of look at them and take a beat and go, yes, my my character in this movie was in quite a bad way. Because the Muppets are actors. They are not characters.
1: Yep, Yep, they are not characters. And then what is the first Muppet movie where they actually are or not themselves is the Christmas Carol, which is delightful. Yeah. is that true? Oh, the thing is, true.
0: if you think about like, I think it's um, I, they all start to blur together for me after a while. Which one is it where Fozzie and Kermit are brothers? Is that the Great Muppet Caper?
1: That is the Great Muppet Caper. Yes. Yeah,
0: and it's like for all of the the furor over the new Muppets movie where the the new Muppet okay. is brothers with Jason Siegel and right. which then you know led to all this kind of kind of jerky stuff on the internet about oh how does a Muppet get into a family of humans and it's like guys 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 it's a movie there was a bear and a frog that were twin (laughs) brothers and no one could tell them apart okay (laughs) that was a plot point in this movie yep so
1: it's established Muppet canon
0: (laughs) so repeat to yourself it's just a show you should really just relax
1: yep yeah I actually I really really loved um I haven't I still haven't seen Muppets Most Wanted yeah the uh the Jason Segel movie I really felt like it was made with love in his specific love for like this kind of unabashed adoration of these little like felt like I would cry if I met Kermit like I would actually I'm 36 I would cry (laughs) (laughs) and I'm and I I mean I watched the Muppet TV show the old Muppet show is like it's perfect and flawless and I will love it forever. The new Muppet show, I could see what they were trying to do and it just didn't quite yeah, ever. I, cou- I couldn't bring
0: myself to watch the new show because I-, I heard a few reviews where they're like, okay, they're trying to be a little too self-aware and all this stuff around, oh, Kermit has a new girlfriend. And it's like, right, yeah. guys, I-, I don't know if I need this in my life right now. It's like, just before we leave the the uh, other the newest Muppet movie, <laughs> it's-, it's like, I-, I still think that life's a happy song may in fact be the platonic ideal of movie musical songs
1: yes yes yep i would i would completely agree with that i mean obviously like meant to be that but also succeeding at it (laughs) yeah it's like
0: i'm like i'll listen to it in the morning and it's like you're walking through town and you've got shopkeepers doing call and response and not since not since (laughs) who will buy in in oliver was there so much shopkeeper interaction (laughs)
1: Oh my god that was a deep cut and i appreciate it
0: (laughs) i'm glad somebody got it
1: (laughs) oh my god of course oliver was one of the musicals that we did when i was in eighth grade actually the bassoon has a really has a really bitchin part in the pit music
0: (laughs) well i was gonna say you find secret musical people everywhere i mean i only learned after uh getting my girlfriend into hamilton did i find out that she's re she knows everything about a chorus line and it came out because there was a video of a guy in a dinosaur suit doing I Hope I Get It. And I realized she was singing along and she's like, How many boys, how many girls, how many people do they need? And I look at her and I'm like, This is something we've never discussed before. She's like,
1: Yeah, I love the chorus it's line. Like, it's- it's like a it's like it's like an Easter egg. It's like a relationship Easter egg. <laughs> I feel like musicals, I know we're getting out but the Buffet movie is a musical. It is. Um, which I feel like that's still like on track to for discussion wise. Oh gosh, I guess if we're gonna talk about the music, we have to talk about Gonzo's song.
0: Oh yes. <sighs> yes. Okay. I'm I'm prepared. <laughs> you can talk about it.
1: That song is I remember I mean I was I was a kid who like I I don't ever remember watching, like, Disney movies or, like, I actually, I do have a vivid memory of watching the Disney Robin Hood movie. Oh, yes. Also recorded. Oh, yes. Recorded off
0: TV Um, with the commercials. Oh, totally,
1: totally. Yep, yep. Wonderful World of Disney. The song where it's Robin and Marion, and they're just sort of, like, mooning around and, like, uh, life goes on. I don't want to. It's their kind of like romantic song. It's just sort of like like them mooning around. It's like it's a very quiet, adult contemporary late 70s moment. And and I remember my cousins like watching it with my cousins and them getting up and leaving the room. And I was like, no, but they love each other. <laughs> like So like the slow songs, the slow kind of slow emotional songs that usually like slow things down. I have always been on board with. Um but that Gonzo song is the song that like you, you know it, it works in the scene but then you hear it again in, as an adult and you're like it's about the like essential like loneliness and like feeling um oh so I, I almost don't know if i have like the right to tell this story how emotionally like like piercing that song is um about the feeling of and, and i mean gonzo is like he is a muppet but like He is the weirdo of the Muppets. I mean, there's something. Even like the the other monsters, like don't claim him as one of their own. Um,
0: Yeah, he is not. He's specifically not a monster. Yeah, that's a that's a big point. Yeah,
1: yeah. The Muppets also appealed to me. I mean, I, I, I never remember feeling, like, lonely as an only child. I was very self-contained. But I always felt, especially, you know, going, like, living outside a district, going to school with my mother. I didn't go to school with the kids in my neighborhood. I was always kind of an insider-outsider, mm-hmm. um, which I think is also, a, like, a kind of temperament that does prepare you to be a writer, right? Because you can, you're can you of it, so you understand what's going on, but you're also apart from it enough to sort of, like, contextualize it. Yeah, And totally. that's kind of what Gonzo is. Like, he's in the group, but he's also, like they don't quite know what to do with them (laughs) they're just like there's Gonzo's over there like shooting himself out of cannons um gonzo is kind of that like misfit in the misfits um and that
0: yeah also he's in an unconventional relationship with a chicken
1: Yes, exactly, <laughs> which was always confusing to me because, like, he really likes Piggy in the Muppet Babies cartoon, which that seemed like, like, even as a child, I was like, I don't think that's canon. I, I, I
0: think that's executive meddling, trying to, like, you know, norm him with the others. It's like, hey, hey, Yes. Camilla and Gonzo, OTP, sorry, <laughs> not sorry.
1: <laughs> no, exactly, exactly, forever. Also,
0: I, I, also, I had a, a theory that Camilla was one of the chickens that play piano when they play as a group. <gasps>
1: Yeah, that's actually, I would, I would. So I'm like, okay,
0: so she's not, she's not just, you know, his assistant. She also helps out in the pit because, hey, Camilla's responsible that way.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. She's and she's and she's multifaceted. Camilla is all the thing.
0: Yeah. Also, Gonzo is my. <laughs> I only realized it later when the the first seasons, a couple of seasons, came out on DVD, uh, and I watched them and I remembered like going, oh, now I know who Ben Vereen is, <laughs> and so that's going to make a lot of sense to me now. But watching the evolution of the Gonzo character as performance artist was yes. d- deeply meaningful to me. And as someone, I'm, I'm a photographer, so uh, as someone who took a long time to like, take that artist's name onto myself to say, no, I am an artist mm-hmm. and this is what I do, watching yep. him, and this is my favorite scene, where Scooter's his manager for a while. And he says, oh, we've given him a rock act. And Kermit's like, okay, great, like a musical act. He's like, no, no, no a rock act. And he pulls out a boulder <laughs> and he starts beating it with a sledgehammer while screaming,
2: art, art. <laughs>
0: and, I, and I was watching this going, this is exceptional. This is perfect. I would go to, I would go to a gallery to watch that today.
2: Yes, I would too. <laughs> because that is the purest like, form You are screaming
0: art to the heavens And it is up to other people to decide What it means to them Because you are doing your thing Go Gonzo
1: It's true and Gonzo doesn't really care I mean that's the other part of it Like he I mean sometimes he cares
0: <laughs> He doesn't feel the need to explain his art to you Scooter
1: Warren yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh, my
0: oh my god We're crossing the strings, but it is totally okay <laughs>
1: god yeah no and gonzo gonzo i would say is my muppet i mean i am very fond of kermit um just like as like a as a soul i am very fond of Fozzie as a soul and one of the my favorite things that I've ever seen is it was like an extra on an old version of the Muppet movie that I had once upon a time that was stolen when my apartment was broken into. Oh no. um, and I, and you can actually, you can see it on YouTube. It's Jim Henson and Frank Oz, like scouting for locations for the Muppet movie in character as Fozzie and Corbin. Oh and they're just, <laughs> oh, it's so funny, Lucas, because they're, they're, they're themselves, they're the characters, but they're just a little looser. So like, there'll be moments when, like, Fozzie's sitting in a tree, and he's, like, I forget what he what he's saying, but basically, like, he says something about, like, my fur. And Kermit's, like, you know you're just, like, foam, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> like,
0: no! no. And he, like, has you're exposing an, the business, has, like, Kermit! Existen- don't!
1: He has, like, an existential crisis in character. It's, like, oh, no. it's Oh, no. It's amazing. It's so awesome, and it's also, you can see, I mean... Part of the magic too, and I read a fair amount of like all the like the books about Jim Henson and his art, like the just like the joy and the weirdness that they had, like him and Frank Oz and I never know how to pronounce Jerry Jewel Joel, Joel? Um, like, like the puppeteers working together, mm-hmm. like actually making something together, um, that like we do think of them as souls, like I totally do, yeah. and the fact that they are not computer, right? Like they are actually physically there, um, they are yeah, tactile. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, you know, that, those, are, those are Jim Hansen's hands playing the piano for Rolf.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly. There's something about that that's really um, magical. Also, only child, like I really, really anthropomorphized my stuffed animals, so. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I, did, I did confess to someone recently that occasionally when I would go to the store and my mom would say, okay, you can have one thing, I would get overwhelmed because I didn't want the others to feel bad that I wasn't picking them. And only then, like, years later, seeing Toy Story and going, oh, God, it was all uh, <laughs> real.
1: Right? <laughs> Toy Story is, is on a short list of movies that, like, the, after I saw it, the first time I immediately watched it, like, immediately again.
0: Yeah, it was at the $2 theater in Vancouver. It was at the Dolphin Cinema on East Hastings Street. And I would go there and it would be $2. And I watched that movie four times
1: it's it and I'm sure every time you watched it like you still had feelings because that movie that movie blew me away when it came out just blew me away
0: oh and I was working in them much later when Toy Story 2 came out I was working at Borders in the music and DVD section and they had the big screen and they put Toy Story 2 on and the moment when when somebody loves you came on I stopped shelving I stared at the TV for the entire song (laughs) and then I had to leave the floor to compose myself
1: sarah mclaughlin
0: (laughs) oh my god that
1: woman man oh breaking hearts
0: god damn you pixar whether it's
1: about all the all the all the inanimate objects we loved and abandoned or all of the animals in a shelter it's
0: it's like hey hey that 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 thing you threw away it misses you it's like oh no no don't do that no no (laughs) it's also why i'm I've, i've actually uh well, Lilo and Stitch is one of my favorite Disney movies. I have oh, to ration one, yeah. myself because that is like weaponized mood whiplash. Oh.
2: <laughs>
0: Every positive feeling in that movie is then immediately bracketed by a soul-crushing sadness in the very next scene. Like, it's like, oh, we're having fun and surfing and there's like a montage to Devil in Disguise. Oh, by the way, yeah, social service is going to take the kid away.
2: <laughs>
1: it's like, oh, no. Peaks and valleys. I, just, I can't Peaks do it. Peaks and valleys. Oh.
0: So, oh. coming back to The Muppet Show, before we go into the <laughs> pile of sadness that is lost toys, <laughs> you, were, you were talking about the interplay between the puppeteers, yeah. and I think nowhere does that is that more evident than The Swedish Chef. Oh my god. Because, and I'm going to try to remember yes. this correctly, <laughs> it was always, between Frank Oz and Jim Henson, one would be the hands and one would be the voice.
1: Yep,
2: yep.
0: And so, they would try and mess each other up as badly as they could. To be like, oh, the hands will be doing something and the voice would have to react. And that kind of, like, you would almost feel that tension of, oh, Christ, what's he done? Right? All right, I gotta, I gotta save this.
1: And it's just, like, creates this form of exquisite, absurd chaos. Yeah. <laughs> and
0: apparently they had to mic those skits very, very carefully because the crew would just be cracking up.
1: And just be dying. <laughs>
0: it's like you can, see, you can see bits of the set start to shake a little bit as people behind were just going... <laughs>
1: You forget how like like I re- well I you know remembered as I was watching because I remember watching the Muppet Show. Um, it was probably in syndication by the time I was watching it. Cause I was I don't even remember when it actually aired, but I remember watching it like at the same time every night kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, which makes me think syndication, but. They're really violent. Um in like a almost like a Tex Avery like Warner Brothers cartoon way, like the Muppophones, oh, Horatio's Horatio the guy who like beats the little Muppets to make them sing different tones and like <laughs> and even like the Swedish Chef ones, like with the various cleavers and like I mean all of the all of the vegetables have faces.
0: <laughs> with the chocolate mousse. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> Here, mousse. And like that <laughs> that like kind of anarchy is in some ways, because the because the movies are, um, I think that they do get more sentimental, and I think that they are more intended for like a young audience. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just thought of actually speaking of emotional peaks and valleys. Um, what is it? Follow That Bird, the the Sesame Street movie, which is literally the saddest thing <laughs> that the Henson Company ever made. Did you ever see that?
0: Oh yeah. Oh my uh, God. Like, yes. I I was talking to someone about this the other day, and you realize just how good that movie
1: thing. is so good but it's so sad <laughs> that was like I feel like there, there are certain points in childhood where like children of the 80s in particular where their innocence was lost for some people it's when spoiler Optimus Prime is killed in the Transformers movie for other people it's when Big Bird strikes out on his own and is like captured <laughs> and forced to perform
0: and D- Dave Thomas paints him blue and he is the blue bird of yep. unhappiness
1: <laughs> and it's the saddest
0: Oh, and, and by the way, I've, I've said this at length on Twitter, but Transformers the Movie was the first movie I ever saw in the theater. I was, it oh, was a, a rerun. I was maybe six years old, and I loved the Transformers, and it wasn't Optimus Prime's death that got me. What got me is in the first scene, Decepticons break into the shuttle and they start shooting like they would in any TV show. Yeah. And then Prowl gets shot. It goes straight through him. You watch his eyes turn black, smoke pours from his mouth. He turns gray and falls down. And I turned to my mother in that theater and said, Mom, mom is proud, Dad. And my mom, without realizing, went, yeah, I guess he is.
1: <laughs> oh my God. Today you are a man.
0: <laughs> Speaking of, of scarring and Muppets, actually, um, I had my first nightmare based on fiction thanks to The Muppet Show.
1: Really? Which
0: there was a, a sketch, and I, I realized I had like you know retroactively made it from the Vincent Price show, but I think it might have been from the Don Knotts show, where he's a professor in a lab, and there's all of these big monstery Muppets in cages around him.
1: Those are really intense Muppets, that like human-sized ones.
0: Yeah, or and there was one in particular that looked like kind of like when you're at a party and there's a pile of coats on a on a bed. Like that, but with a huge toothy maw and these giant, like, Jab of the Hutt like eyes. And basically, the sketch was things getting more and more complicated as he runs around trying to feed all the various animals and get things done. And as the music swells and swells, and basically he ends up tripping over backwards, landing his butt in the mouth of this Muppet, which then eats him whole.
1: Oh. <laughs> Nightmare fuel!
0: And you see his feet, his feet, like, disappear. And that messed with me, Kate, to the point where I had. <laughs> Nightmares, and I woke up screaming in the middle of the night because I was worried that I was that scientist and I was going to get eaten in that way. And my dad, being very forward thinking for you know like 1988 or whatever it was, had me draw a picture of the monster and then he held it up and I put my fist through it.
1: Oh, way to go, dad!
0: I, right? Good. Like, I look back at that and go, that was, that was exceptionally forward thinking <laughs> for that
2: time,
1: it really was. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of people are... You know, either uncomfortable with puppets in general or just like, I mean, a lot that the Hens and Company did eventually do, like, traumatize people, like the Goblins and Labyrinth. The Skexes? Like, there are the Skexes. Um, uh, there's a lot of, and the Gartham, like, a lot of what happens in the Dark Crystal is fairly traumatizing. I never found it scary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I also remember watching the Dark Crystal with my aunt while she was babysitting me once, and I must have been like five or six, I was little. And in the very beginning, when the emperor dies mm-hmm. and he just sort of like crumbles to pieces, I remember her sort of like you know being like, "Are you okay?" And and I was like, "Oh, that happens all the time." <laughs> <laughs> like very healthy, like like feeling like life and death. But um, yeah, there were very few things, or there were there were like a few discreet things that always that frightened me in movies as a child, and um, they were always based on uh like character like the gmork in the never-ending story oh yeah really scared me, i would just... have to look away i'd have to long, look away like...
0: and then i would hear his voice and i'd wait till it was over and never, and then look back
1: yeah exactly it's the it's the tension of that long monologue right mm. like where he's just like and, and he just like is like a not a very good puppet in a cave but like he's just like waiting that would scare me um
0: oh the the rollers from return to oz the wheelers that's it
1: oh the wheelers. Yep. Yeah, and
0: when when the Wheeler then fell into the deadly desert and turned to sand and
1: started to fall apart, yeah. totally. Uh, that
0: was the, I was watching yep. that for the first time, and I turned that movie off and it took me and I fast forwarded it, and I came back to where she was in the gnome king's thing, like touching all the different stuff, and yeah, yep. that's where yep. like that whole middle of the movie is gone. Also, Mombi taking off her head and putting on another Other head.
1: Heads. Yep, yep. <laughs> None of that bothered me as a kid. I remember I loved that movie like unreservedly. It was actually on the tape after Ghostbusters, or was it before Ghostbusters? I think it might have been before Ghostbusters because like I have this image of like her running out to play on the farm at the end, Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden it's the New York Public Library. I'm pretty sure that's all. That was like the best tape ever.
0: Also, I I think I think I need to have someone on specifically about movies that you only saw part of for maybe 10 years because the tape started at a certain point.
1: <laughs> or like you only saw like one particular version of it because it was edited for TV or <laughs> there's this like rando scene in like the version of the Goonies that's on the Disney channel because they cut out so much other stuff apparently mm-hmm. um, where Data actually like it's like Data, stuff and Mouth get attacked by an octopus in like when they are like by the pirate ship and which makes sense because later like when they're talking to the sheriff data's like the octopus was very scary and you're (laughs) like what octopus oh this deleted scene but that's another but i can see that it i mean it doesn't really work it's not a great scene it's really not (laughs) i've never found puppets or muppets or anything that sort of is actually I mean the oh, what do they call the, um, Not the Skeksis, uh, the the like the Gelflings. Like they have they have a little Uncanny Valley eye going on, um, but that has never really bothered me. Um, computer Uncanny Valley bothers me. It has
0: to be something. And the thing is, those Gelfling puppets were not fantastic, uh, or at least no. the, some of them were. not like some of the like they would use different puppets for different things, and some of them were a little yeah. bit better than others. I think it's something that has to be close enough. To being a person, that your brain kind of forgets it's a puppet, and then yeah. it just looks like a creepy human.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, oh my gosh, I'm terrible. What's what's the name of the Frank Oz puppet? The sort of like the witch that, um, uh, that sounds like Miss Piggy <laughs> in the Dirt Crystal. Oh shoot. Oh, um, oh, 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 oh or so Olga, 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 Olga. Something I'll buy like that. that. Olga. I'll buy that. Yeah, she like she has a very like. Like puppet face, but like because she's not supposed to look kind of like a fairy or sort of something that's a little more humanoid. Like she looks more real, um, which I think is part of that. Oh,
0: uh, see also uh, Agnes, the the junk lady from *Labyrinth*.
1: Yes, Labyrinth. yes. She yep. just looks like that's a little woman. a really old woman. upsetting scene.
0: And again, coming back to that *Toy Story* thing, where it's like the the I think the real scariness of Agnes is yeah, ev- everything you have ever lost is here. And it's like, as someone who moves a lot, you, you know, variations of your stuff comes with you. And that, become, that becomes a comfort in, in a new place. Yeah. So this idea of, oh yeah, everything that you lost and forgot about, it's still there.
1: Mm-hmm. It's still there. It's like, and that's, it's still like, know. and you can cover yourself with it. But if all you do is cover yourself with it, then you'll be stuck outside the gates of the Goblin City forever. Oh.
0: <laughs> well, to quote John, Judge John Hodgman, the difference between a hoarder and a collector is an adequate means of display
1: <laughs> it's true <laughs> i would say agnes had an adequate means of display it was just like all over hey her. That, that junk
0: pile that was a feature
1: <laughs> there's a lot i mean a, i mean a lot of it are the um the frowd like goblin design is very creepy
0: oh did, did you read the book the the goblins of labyrinth
1: yes 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 it's so cool <laughs>
0: It's such a great book. Although there is a goblin with a detachable penis. I
1: do remember that from the book and being like, where was that in the movie?
0: <laughs> yep. And and then I remember just like the, the the line saying it's like, oh yeah, there's a lot of children that look a lot like him. And I'm like,
1: oh,
0: oh, that's terrible.
1: <laughs> and you're like, that might be above my PG-13 pay grade. I don't even remember what that movie was rated. I would guess it was just PG.
0: I think it was, yeah. Because didn't PG-13... What was the movie that that Um, did it?
1: I thought it was a combination of Gremlins and Temple of Doom.
0: Yes, I think it was, because it was so scary.
1: Yeah. And Gremlins is like, oh, my God. Like, those puppets are amusing, but that is a grisly movie. Gremlin in the microwave? Gross. (laughs) (laughs) But also, like, the spirit of Gremlins. Like, the thing with, like, a Muppet universe is very... It is very like things are going to be okay in the end, um, even when it's chaotic. There's some there's some kind of like essential good heartedness, and not so with the gremlins. Like that's that's a like my my dad dressed up like Santa Claus and died on Christmas Eve. Like there's no one safe in that universe. <laughs> <laughs> oh
0: God, yeah. Right?
1: That <laughs> that scene is
0: terrible. And gremlin, with me was the when the gremlin that blew up on the microwave. Yeah.
1: Like, that's a that's a like horrifying um oh what's the word for it urban legend like the old lady who tries to dry, tries to dry off her dog in the microwave
0: yeah that was one of those uh, urban legends in the movie urban legend mm-hmm. where were it not for the movie urban legend i wouldn't have known that urban legend
1: <laughs> and you're like thanks urban legend i didn't need to know this <laughs> <laughs> who, who's your favorite muppet
0: oh see it was gonzo for a very long time yeah uh, and then, but when I was older, I would, when I was rewatching the shows, I would hang on for, you know, little things like, you know, the occasional times when Miss Piggy was not Frank Oz mm-hmm. and had that weird voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, or when Uncle Deadly would be there. And oh, the fact Uncle that Deadly. he became part of the villain team in the new Muppet movie, I was so happy about yep. that because he was yep. such a cool-looking puppet. But I, I have a very particular soft spot for Fozzie Bear oh. because my very first joke that I ever told, which I did not understand until I was maybe 15, because my dad <laughs> saw it on the Muppet show, and then decided to have me tell this joke at parties when I was maybe five. (laughs) It was the, wait, wait, the comedian's a bear, he's not a bear, he's wearing a necktie.
1: Oh, I got it!
0: (laughs) And what's funny is that when you watch that sketch as an adult, the humor in that sketch comes from the fact that they work out what the call and the response is very early, but Fozzie keeps screwing it up. (laughs) And he keeps... Or no, Kermit keeps screwing it up, and Fozzie is just getting like, increasingly frustrated with him, which is a rare thing that you see Fozzie do because Fozzie is always the genial. Yeah. I'm just, you know, nothing offends him. Yeah. But the fact that he's getting frustrated, and because Kermit's coming in early with a punchline, he's like, "No, no, you're not. You're not doing it right. You're not." Oh. Uh, and then finally, he gets it right, and he gets to deliver it, and it does nothing because it's a terrible joke.
1: Oh, Fozzie. I do. He's up there, too. He's up there, too. I also thought of another, um, you were saying before, that you had your first, like, nightmare from a fictional thing. I don't remember having a nightmare, but I do remember being completely terrified by a sketch on Sesame Street, actually, uh, that was Bert and Ernie. It's sort of like being in Egypt, being, like, adventurers or, like, archaeologists or something. And Bert and Ernie go into, um, like, a pyramid.
0: Mm-hmm. As you do,
1: and there are two sarcoph- yeah, as you do, and there are two sarcophagi that look like Bert and Ernie, but like you know, Egyptian sarcophagi. And Bert is obviously because he's Bert, um, and Bert, Bert of my two is is my preference of the two is my preference. <laughs> um, he's just like beside himself; he thinks this is the coolest thing, and he's like looking at stuff. And Ernie's a little more like cautious about it, which again is sort of an inversion of their traditional dynamic. Um, mm-hmm. And while Bert is investigating something. I think it's the Ernie sarcophagus, like, talks to, to Ernie. And Ernie, of oh, course, Jesus. is like, yeah, he's, like, <laughs> terrified. And he goes to tell Bert. And Bert doesn't believe him. And like this happens like a couple times on a cycle and every time he like Bert doesn't believe him. And that was what was frightening to me <laughs> as a child. It's like
0: Oh, so so the fact that, that Bert was potentially gaslighting Ernie.
1: Exactly, exactly. Or like that just no one like like this thing that like Ernie is objectively experiencing, he's not he's not being believed that it's true. Um and, Oh wow,
0: that yeah, you could unpack that right, a lot out of right.
1: it. <laughs> and I just remember being like, This is so horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, and, I'll, and then of course at the end like Bert and Ernie are there together and this sarcophagi like sing and dance and it's like adorable and of course everyone believes everyone but I was like already scarred forever.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think everyone when you're a kid thinks they're an Ernie and then they grow up and realize they're a Bert.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I am I am Bert to the core.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know what maybe just like like let me let me polish my bottle cap collection. You go to the party. I'm cool. I'm I'm fine.
1: I'm gonna talk to the pigeons. Maybe I'll hang out with the twiddle bugs. I'm I'm cool. I'm cool. I actually remember, and maybe again, it's like an only child thing. I never had to adjust and like learn how to use my words to sell someone else to like stop getting all up in my business. But I was like, why doesn't Ernie just leave him alone? Like he clearly is just up. Nope, nope. That's just that's not what this dynamic is about.
0: Ernie, (laughs) Ernie, Ernie, Ernie. What? Why? Why are you having cookies this late? What? Why are there cookies in the bed? Don't, don't eat cookies in the bed it's gonna make a mess
1: <laughs> you're like you were making life harder for yourself Ernie <laughs> like I can't watch you are it.
0: building a rod for your own back Ernie
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can't sit by and watch anymore
0: <laughs> oh. see I, f- I feel like like Sesame Street could be a whole other thing oh like my I God. had the the Sesame Street fever record
1: yeah oh I totally have it.
0: Uh, that had Grover in a white suit like Saturday Night Fever, and then asking my dad what why is it called Sesame Street Fever? Oh, because there's a movie called Saturday Night Fever. And I go, yeah, but but he's not sick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's a reference to, it's because he's dancing. It's like, D- does he get sick from dancing? No, 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 it's it's a reference. And then in that way of the kid thing where you's like you're asking the same question like weeks apart because you forget. And you look and you go, oh, I remember dad told me what that was, but I don't remember what it is. Hey, dad, so what's the deal with the suit? And I could just see him going, oh, okay, okay, so John Travolta, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> he has a fever. It's
0: like repeatedly, like I had, I had the NHL penance on the wall, like lots of kids do. Uh, and I never understood the Chicago Blackhawks one because I had not heard of the native tribe that is the Blackhawks Hawk Black tribe. <laughs> And so I would just look, and I would see, okay, there's a face. What's that one called again? Blackhawks. But there isn't a bird. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's Look, it's complicated appropriation of (laughs) uh, native peoples into mascots. And look, just just go to bed. Go to bed.
1: (laughs) You're like, we'll continue this discussion when you're a little older.
0: All right, Kate. Well, uh, look, we can wrap this up. We are running a little bit short on time. But if people wanted to find you on the internet, where would they do so?
1: Um, well, as far as I know, I am the only Kate Raculia in existence. That's a bold claim. So if you Google me, um, you should find my website, which is kateraculia.com, Or I'm at Twitter, at Kate I post many pictures of my cats, if you're into that kind of thing.
0: I'm pretty sure the majority of our listener base is very pro-cat. Indeed. And also, everyone should go and buy Boa the Rhapsody, if your local bookshop, does not stock it i suggest you move or <laughs> just go to amazon and get the ebook like i did
1: excellent thank you please do
0: okay <laughs> this was so much fun i'm i'd be happy to have you on another time and we can definitely go into that time that big bird went to japan and went to kyoto to see things from long ago too
1: oh, my- <laughs> thank you so much for having me this was so fun
2: Turn around, turn around and see me cry. There's so much I need to say to you. So many reasons why. You're the only one who really knew me at all.
0: Thanks once again to Kate Rakulia for her time. This week's signature cocktail is the Electric Mayhem. In an empty shaker, without ice, add... 1.5 ounces of botanical gin, one ounce of green chartreuse, one and one third ounces of lemon juice, one dash of orange bitters, one ounce of rosemary simple syrup, which is made by boiling equal parts of sugar in water with four sprigs of rosemary, and one egg white. Put the lid on the shaker and shake vigorously for 20 seconds. You should be able to see the egg start to foam. Add six ice cubes and shake vigorously for another 30 seconds until frost forms on the outside of the shaker. Strain into a pre-chilled cocktail glass. Garnish with a long strip of lemon peel and a sprig of rosemary. This drink was inspired by one found at a North Sydney bar. However, that North Sydney bar took the egregious step of splitting its cocktails into gentlemen's drinks and ladies' drinks. Their version of this cocktail was found at the top of the list of ladies drinks with a caption saying it was just as pretty as the ladies who drink it. (sighs) I think I speak for all of us when I say that the bullshit gendering of cocktails is not to be had. So please enjoy this drink, whatever your gender. And to the Foxtrot Inn, you make a tasty drink, but really, go fuck yourself. Enjoy! is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on The Math of You, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, And you can follow my Wacky Adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. My Snapchat's pretty much pictures of my cats, my dog, and things I'm about to eat, so fair warning. If you have a few dollars and would like to directly support the show, we have a Patreon just for that. Go over to patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. You can get great rewards, and it really helps the show. Also, I appreciate it. Next week, I'll be talking to podcaster and theater artist Craig Getting about great teachers, being a king of Prussia, and a secret history that he's told no one else. Join me, won't you? Shoot! Forget it. It'll, it'll come to me. So tell me. So tell me what? Oh yes, Fast and Furious Seven. That's what I was gonna say. Like that, that movie, is so ridiculous and so dumb. It is kind of like like it is the ice sculpture swan of stupid movies.
1: <laughs> here's so here's my here's my shame, which like is weird because I. Adore movies that would normally fall under the classification of stupid or inane or, um, I mean, I really feel like Mystery Science Theater, uh, watching a lot of that as a preteen and teenager honed my appreciation for kitsch and things that are terrible, but in their terribleness are also awesome. I have never seen any of the Fast and the Furious movies. I don't know how that happened.
0: See, I I saw the first one when I was at university, and I hated it. Mm -hmm. I hated it so badly because I expected it to be, you know, a movie. I expected it to be a film that had a beginning, middle, and end and made sense and was not stupid. And uh, I had a bunch of gearhead engineer friends who absolutely loved it because of all the car porn in it. And I had no interest in that. And I'm just like, why why are we watching this movie again? This movie is so dumb. Uh, And then I ignored all of them until Chris Sims, who is a podcaster and writer about comic books, uh, said that he saw Fast 7 – sorry, Furious 7 – and right? Like, I don't he, know
2: if I could even keep them all straight. No. We,
0: I had this conversation yesterday with my girlfriend. I'm like, it doesn't make any sense. But he saw Furious 7 and then immediately saw Mad Max Fury Road in the same day, like, back to back. Whoa. And he's like, I, I enjoyed Furious 7 so much, I was too exhausted to fully appreciate Mad Max Fury Road. And I had to see it again. <laughs> uh, because there, there is a moment... And he's recounted this at length on his podcast. But there's a moment in Furious Seven where The Rock has been thrown out of a four-story building by uh, an explosion and cushioned his coworker from the fall by landing first on top of a car. And from this, he gets like a broken leg, a broken arm, and is in the hospital. Uh, as opposed to being, you know, pizza instead
1: of being dead. Yeah, um, I mean, the other like The Rock is just someone that I will watch in anything. Um, oh, totally. I just- find him enormously charming
0: yeah and also it's something where you take pro wrestlers out of a pro wrestling environment and even smaller ones like the miz who is mike Mizzenin, and you put him in a movie and he suddenly like towers over everyone else i'm like he's a small wrestler he's like <laughs> like he's not a big dude and then you put the rock in there and it looks like okay you've just like you've put a cartoon in the middle of this but the thing in is the he, gets, other, he gets he gets injured and um he's there in his cast and he sees an explosion off in the city and he looks to his little daughter, and he goes, Daddy's got to go to work. And then he <laughs> flexes his arm, and he splits the cast off his arm by flexing. And then he, no, he like puts happen. on his tactical gear, which is in the hospital with him, loads his gun, puts his gun in his holster, and turns to his daughter, who has been standing there the whole time. And he's like, give me three for the road. And she gives him like a triple fist bump. And then he steals an ambulance and goes to fight in the final action scene. And I was oh just yelling God. at my TV going, what is happening?
2: What is, <laughs> I, I don't know.
1: Denying myself so much pleasure by not watching these movies. I, I'm going to go watch one after this. It's going to happen. It's, I'm going to go watch. Wait, oh, is there one I should start with? Oh, I don't Start don't with this know. one. <laughs>
0: start with this one. Start with Furious 7 because okay. you don't need any of the others. You just need to know Vin Diesel is a car thief turned, um, like, international adventurer. Like, when you'd okay. read the, the Handbook to the Marvel Universe and it would say, like, occupation, you know, booze hound slash adventurer. And, <laughs> and it would just be like... Um, and then, so, yeah, they go around and they get involved in stuff and stuff blows up. They drove a car. Out of a skyscraper in Dubai, landed it in a second skyscraper. Then he kept going, drove out and into a third skyscraper.
1: <laughs> these sound like these are literally all the plots that like children have when they're playing. Like five-year-olds have when they're playing with toys. And I feel like more movies should be made that follow these plots. Oh my God! Just yes. Sheer joy, sheer joy. They
0: even do that within the movie because Paul Walker has a little three-year-old who's playing with a red car that looks like his car from the first movie, and. The kid throws the car like out out of his car seat because he's in in his car playing with his toys and he throws it mm-hmm. and he and Paul Walker kind of rescues it and goes oh here you go pal hey cars don't fly remember. And then they reference that later when they're driving off the skyscraper in a red car. When Paul Walker turns to Vin Diesel and goes, Hey man, cars can't fly! Cars
1: can't fly! That is the Fast and Furious version of Chekhov's gun, and I salute it.
0: Once you have a flying red car, it has to go through a skyscraper. Exactly!
1: You will see it happen later. It is
0: incredible. Also, the sheer amount of... I can only say beef in this movie just purely because it's just like at one point there is a fight where Jason Statham rips two bits off his car and Vin Diesel picks up two like arm-sized wrenches and they start sword fighting <laughs> with them and i'm just That's like so I, 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 i've i've had head trauma i'm what what is happening
1: so wait oh. so wait Jason Statham is also in this movie wait he's the
0: he's are, the bad guy it's amazing okay.
1: is he the so in other movies, is Vin, Vin Diesel and The Rock are nemesis? Friendly nemesis? Sort of, yeah. Friendly, okay, okay. So they—I'm guessing—they eventually have to team up to fight Jason Statham.
0: Because, yeah, they—it's like cool okay. plus awesome versus devious. <laughs> it's yeah. Wow. I I would That's recommend, uh, yeah. Kate Rakulia. You need to go and you need to find yourself, Furious <laughs> Seven. Get some popcorn and some wine. And prepare yourself to shout at the television.
1: That sounds amazing. I'm going to scare my cats. (laughs)